Matthew chapter 2 can be found on page 966 of the Church Bible. Page 966. Matthew chapter 2. The heading is The Visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, of incense and of myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Gracious, loving God and Father, as we've heard your word read and as now we look into it a bit more closely by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? Lord, we would see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I arrived at college, university, Thielsborough College, about 30 years ago. And as you do when you arrive at college, uh, to train to be a training church minister, I was confronted with my first essay title. This was the title. Was Jesus inevitably a political figure? I wonder if you were given that question. He had a scale from zero. You must be joking. Through to ten, absolutely. Where would you answer that question? You've got ten seconds in your head. Was Jesus an evidence of political figure? Zero, you must be joking. Ten, absolutely. I'm not going to check you for the answers, but just in your heads, okay? All done? I bristled reading that essay title. What has Jesus got to do with politics? Isn't he about saving people from hell for heaven? What's all this politics stuff? After I've written my essay, I got some rather chastening feedback. But maybe you're a bit like me there, and that Jesus is more of the private sphere. 
the religious sphere, the personal preference, nothing to say on racism. Not obviously clear how, how he relates to party politics, whether of Sunak or Starmer or Davy or whoever. Not directly connected, nothing much clear to say. What's happening in Ukraine or with Putin? How do we, how, what's he going to say to Xi Jinping in China? And what's he got to say about what's happening in the Middle East as we speak? Deeply contested stories, deeply distressing scenes, incredibly puzzling and difficult. And if he's not easy to see how he relates to that public sphere, the world of politics, that kind of world, how does he relate to my everyday life, to retirement, to changing nappies, to writing software? to managing plant shutdowns, to sitting exams, to immigration questions, to hospital appointments. We're in this morning in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2. I hope you've got it in front of you, you're going to need your Bibles. It's one of the accounts of Jesus' life, one of the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And if you've been reading up to this moment... Don't worry if you've not been here before. Brief summary. The first 17 verses of chapter one have been saying how God is faithful to his promises. Promises to Abraham, promises to David. He's going to send a king, a Messiah, who's going to usher in the reign of justice and of peace. God's reign coming. And he's also loving to all, all, all that he's made. That is, if you look at the characters in those first 17 verses, you can see that a whole bunch of them are unlikely. And then we saw last time in chapter one with Dim that God is predictably unpredictable or unpredictably predictable. That is Mary and Joseph. Just common ordinary names, common ordinary people, young teenagers betrothed to be married, and yet God fulfills purposes and his promises through them. And then we come today to very, I guess it's very familiar, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, very familiar, it often features, sometimes called the story of the three wise men. What we're going to do is to journey through this together, okay? Do wise help of a Bible. Look how it begins, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So verse 1 sets the scene. Did you notice? There's no word wasted. In Bethlehem of Judea. Come back to that. We're going to see that later on. You may remember it from the reading. During the time of King Herod. Herod is a fascinating character. He was a remarkable builder. Has anyone been to Masada in Israel? 
Well, so if you look at Google Masada, not now, if you've got your phone on afterwards, Masada uses this extraordinary hill fort. But even today, the second temple, the big temple that he built, you can still head there. The Wailing Wall is still part of that 2,000 years later. He was an extraordinary builder. He was also a pretty brutal man. And he was only on the throne because he was a stooge of the occupying Roman forces. So there's, we've got Bethlehem of Judea. We've got Herod, King Herod. And then we've got the Magi. Shady, shadowy, puzzling figures. We kind of know that they're three wise men or three kings. Or do we? We don't know there were three. We only know they bought gold, frankincense and myrrh. And therefore people have assumed that there were three because they each bought a different gift. We don't know that. We didn't even know they were wise men. We certainly didn't know they were kings. Interestingly enough, it looks like it, that's come out of Psalm 72 when there's the expectation that the kings are going to come and bring tribute. But we get the word magician from them. These are sorcerers, astrologers, the kind of people, if you go back to your Old Testament, they're a no-no. And in the New Testament, you've got Elimas in Acts 13 or Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. Magicians, this was not a likely group of people. Matthew was taking a big risk talking about this. We'll come back to it. And why did they come? Well, they'd seen a star. Not as bright as the sun, but they'd seen a star. Again, people don't know. There have been different suggestions. You've probably heard. You can read learned articles on the internet about it, whether it was a comet, but there was no independent evidence. Chinese astronomers discovered a supernova in 4 BC. Was it that that they were seeing? Or was it, as some people think, it was a conjunction in the Pisces of Saturn and Jupiter? And what, because of what they represented within astrology, this was a leader in the Westland in the end days. So there's a bit of the scene. Just a question for you. Why are films so popular? Why are soaps so popular? Why are box sets so popular? You can speak. What does it make them popular? Why are you compelled by them? There's a story. Drama. Drama. There's visual and audio. Human. So it's about people, often people. Escapism. Escape. But why is this an escapism? Because it. It seems to me that the the fundamental there's something about tension or conflict. If I said, I woke up this morning, I went downstairs, I made some breakfast, that is not riveting, is it? There's no conflict, there's no tension. There's no, but stories or they have tension or conflict built in. And what's interesting here is you have two types of tension. I was wondering if you noticed in chapter verses one and two. Do you notice the tension that's here? Setting the scene. 
Can we read it again so you can get a feel? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Mag- that was a subtle hint, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? There's already a reigning king. We have two kings set up. When you tell me that Jesus wasn't about politics, this is about the collision of two empires, the collision of two kingdoms. How do they work? How do they fit together? It's verse three. What happens next? A scene shift to Jerusalem. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. He went into turmoil. Why? You know, there's David Attenborough, now Chris Packham programmes on the on TV. Anyone seen those? You see this picture and you see a lion with all the lionesses around and then or you see a stag with all the does around. What happens next? You wait for a young upstart to come in, don't you? And what's going to happen next? Fighting conflicts. That's the kind of thing that's... So here you've got Herod. He hears that this young upstart has been born. No wonder it was destabilizing. So what does he do? Well, he goes to the scribes, verse 4. He knew the scriptures had the answers. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And the answer? In Bethlehem, in Judea. Do you remember? Back to verse one. Because that's the other type of tension that we also love when we're watching things. It's between what we, it's different what we know, watching, and what the characters know inside. Because sometimes we know things that the characters don't know, and they watch them as they behave in particular ways and discover particular things that we already know. We know Jesus is the Christ. You've already been told this by Matthew. But Herod's finding his way there. And here's our little hint in Bethlehem in Judea. What's going to happen when he finds out? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, this is what the prophet has written. For you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, Matthew takes us back to the Old Testament scriptures. If you look very carefully, you'll notice that he's shaped in some ways some of the wording. He's blended two passages and he's changed the wording because he's trying to make the point. It's here, but it's not like you expected. Yes, it was expected. Yes, it was promised, but not exactly as you might have expected. And what might Herod you expect Herod to have done having heard this? He believed the scriptures. He knew them to be true. Verse seven. Sounds good, doesn't it? Don't you think? When then Herod called the Magi secretly, hmm, not so sure, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too might, might go and worship him. Why secretly? I take it. 
this is all part of a deviousness that's beginning to come to the fore. We as readers think, how does secretly relate to, well, I'm going to go and worship him. His own position has been threatened. He wants a diligent, thorough search. That's going to be tough for Mary and Piggy and Jesus, young Jesus, isn't it? The Magi's pawns or as runners for his own plans. There's no hint they should have suspected anything. There's no, they warned in a dream later on. But the irony here is this. Herod goes to the scriptures for the answer. But when he finds out that he doesn't want to believe it, he wants to suppress it. Did you notice that? He believes the scriptures, but then he wants to suppress them and push them to one side. And then verse nine, after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. How did the little phrase begin? Verse nine. After they heard the, the king. Oh, interesting. Is he really the king? No, no, he's not Herod. He's described as the king. Again, back to our collision of two worlds, our collision, the political dimension of how rulers interact. But we know his position is very fragile. We know he's not the real king. We know where this is going to go. So they follow the star above the house. Again, scientists say, well, actually, autonomous say, you can't literally do this. You don't have a star literally above a house. It might have been either something supernatural or it might have been something that the uh, Magi themselves and people in that world would have recognised as being uh, the understanding that they had as they came to that place. And then verse 10, they have great joy. And then on coming to the house, verse 11, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their trays and presented them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, they didn't know otherwise, they had no reason to doubt Herod's words, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So it's a clash of two kings. And who is the real king? Who is the real one? Did you notice this king, King Jesus, is a global king? He's not just the king of the Jews. You've got Magi coming from the east. He's not just king of the Jews and religious people. You've got the pagans, the people who are the astrologers, the most outside. They come and bow down and give worship. Matthew took the risk in including this account of magi, magicians, to a Jewish audience because he wanted to make it clear. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's a global king, king over everybody, everything, all authority. Again, this is a little picture, a miniature at the very end of Matthew's gospel. I'd love to see Stephen nodding. Exactly, Stephen, you're exactly right. At the end of the gospel, do you remember what the last words are? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of 
all nations, because he's a global king. But you notice he's also a cosmic king. This is a cosmic event. There's a star in the sky, there's astrologers. This is a cosmic thing. He's not just your little local tin pot king. And he's also a promised king, did you notice? Promised long before in the scripture. So these three great currents come together. The global king, a cosmic king, a promised king. And what's the picture that you're getting? You're going to sum it up? How would you sum it up? If you're preaching a sermon on this? How about something like Jesus is the true and promised king of all the world? How does that sound? Jesus is the true and promised king of all the world. How can you respond to this? Well, one is Herod's response. False kings don't like true kings. Anything that challenges a fragile ego, anything that challenges your own autonomy. And that's been true of church history. Those in power, in China against the church, in Somalia against the church, in Iran against the church, in North Korea against the church, leaders threatened by the world's true king. Always a political threat, a threat to their authority. They say, no, you're not our king. Right across the world, Christians are persecuted. Though our media won't highlight it, Christians are by far the most persecuted group around the world. By far the most. Totalitarian regimes. See them as a threat because they say, no, you're not our Lord. Jesus Christ is our Lord. Our allegiance is to him. Caesar is not. Xi Jinping is not. Netanyahu is not. Hamas is not. Biden is not. Starmer is not. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is wonderfully, wonderfully liberating. Because no human political authority has ultimate power or ultimate authority. God is not lined up completely with any political power or authority. The gospel can all, Jesus Christ can always critique from the outside. Our culture is floundering how to critique the current situation. Do you notice that? Doesn't know what to say and how to say it. Because there's no grounds for saying, it just is. Unless there was another king who is above all. No, of course we should play our part in politics. Of course we should not wash our hands. Of course we should vote. But they're not the ultimate. Jesus Christ is. And we're tired if we try and build God's kingdom here. And we think somehow the church is lined up with the kingdom. That again ends in dreadful tears. But let's you point the finger at others and think, oh, Herod, what an idiot. This is actually all of us as humans from the very beginning of the Bible. We want to put the crown, the crown, not sure it's a good crown, on our own head. Say, I know best. I'll decide, thank you very much. When faced with the reality of God's king, we can feel threatened. We might even know the scriptures like Herod and push them to one side. Deep insecurity, anything that threatens my rule, my right to self-determination. 
Herod. Do you remember? Devious, destructive, deadly. The gospel begins with murderous violence. That's next time. It ends with murderous violence. You get the picture. Humanity at its core is not good. We're deeply flawed. Humanity, we want to put the crown on our own head and we'll murder our maker. But the glorious truth of the gospel is violence won't have the last word. It didn't with Herod. It didn't with the crucifixion. It won't today. Violence will not have the last word. There's a second response here that you notice. That's of the Magi. And the wonderful thing is, doesn't matter who you are. You have zero Christian background, zero Christian history, no understanding, no knowledge, no nothing. And you can come. And do you notice what they did? There was amazing joy when they saw the star. There's the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as king. Don't forfeit that joy. Never forfeit it. It's the most amazing thing in the world. And come with worship with our homage, with our gifts. We're not too old to do it. We're not too young to do it. Worship the true king. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, Major, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. That's what he asked us today. To give our hearts to him. To know the joy for it is to know him. And of course, as we'll pray later on, to pray that God's kingdom will come on earth as in heaven. What's he got to do with politics? A lot. And to do with eternity, of course. They go together. God's going to reign the new heavens and new earth through his king. And the good shepherd, of course, shepherds his people and lays down his life for them, soaking up the violence, the hatred and the hostility and our sin, the judgment for that sin and dealing with it. What can I give him? Give my heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you know each one of our hearts. You know what's up. Coming through our minds, you know, the desperate traumas and the news coming and into our homes. You know, the struggles you may have with relationships or bereavement or sickness or jobs, whatever it might be. How to deal with the political scene. Thank you that you are indeed Lord of all. Mm-hmm. Thank you that the promised cosmic global. King, Lord, we come to you, we want to worship you, to give our hearts, to give of ourselves with joy and generosity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.